You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Casal, joined today by friend and colleague, Dr. Megan Neff. And Megan has been on the podcast before where we were talking about autism and ADHD. And today we are going to talk about the experiences of being autistic ADHD therapists and entrepreneurs. And we're both kind of tired today. Um, checking in before we started recording, we're both kind of uh, just run down. So we're going to see where this goes. And I think that's kind of um, divergence in a nutshell. So Megan, I'm really happy to have you on again. I'm really excited to be back. I really enjoyed our last conversation and found it meaningful and just feel easy to dive in with you. And I don't know what we're going to talk about, but I trust it'll be interesting and meaningful. That feels like high praise. Um, <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And I was telling Megan before we started, I intuitively thought about you before this episode. And I was like, I, I feel like Megan might have a lot going on right now. And I could sense that. Do you ever feel like in terms of intuition, autistic people being able to sometimes read that without even being in connection for mm -hmm. a long time? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I, I often say or think, you know, I think probably in, in past, you know, if we go, would go back hundreds of years that a lot of autistic people would have been shamans or prophets or kind of spiritual leaders kind of visionaries. Um, I've certainly had experiences that are like unexplainable and will just know things about people or know things. And, and I see that a lot in my clients too, that sort of energetic knowing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I have always thought about that, you know, in, in terms of, you know, not wanting to jump out and like try to assume or speak for someone in some way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but ultimately really having a very deep understanding and sort of unexplainable connection or intuition into what's happening in that person's experience mm -hmm. or that person's world. And that happens a lot as um, not just a therapist, but an autistic therapist. And, you know, I've talked before about how there's this misconception. And I think you and I talked a little bit about this last time too, this misconception that, you know, autistic people are not empathetic, um, mm -hmm. can't be connected mm -hmm. to other people. Like that is so, yeah, that's so badly off base. And mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about that in terms of being a therapist too. And then, you know, yeah. Tell us your thoughts about that in general. Oh, so many thoughts. Um, I mean, this was the reason my husband and I, and then my therapist and I like initially had a really hard time thinking about me as autistic. Um, the, the first time I was like, I think it's me, right? Cause we're trying to figure out where did my daughter get it from? Cause typically one of the parents is not always, but and my husband is like, well, we know it's not you. Cause like, I'm craving emotional connection. I'm very emotionally aware. 
And so that was huge for me once I learned that like that there's a difference between picking up emotional tone and picking up social cues. And that that took me a while of like, okay, I feel so autistic except for this piece. But then what I realized I, I have struggled with is I just assume people want their emotional tone observed and commented on. So like, you know, talking with a fellow, like when I was in training, I remember an encounter where I think we're in the hallway and I was like, you seem sad. And, and I meant to empathetically, but she obviously got very awkward. And looking back, I think she was, and we were probably having one that was like, how are you? She was like, good. And I was like, you seem sad. And she was probably not wanting that drawn out, but I wasn't picking up the verbal cues of like, I'm sad, but I don't want to talk about it. And so that's where I realized, oh, okay, there is a difference here. Um, and it is an interesting, like people in my life, like going through high school and college always felt pretty, a lot of people felt quickly known and understood by me because I would, again, I would like know what they were emotionally feeling pretty quickly. But yeah, those social cues of not everyone once that pointed out, that part was totally messing to me. That's such a good delineation too, and to kind of point both of those things out, because I think if you took a step back and started to think about it that way, that makes a whole lot of sense where you can be really not just intuitive, but receptive and and really you're, you're absorbing that person's energy too, right? And like mm -hmm. being able to witness it as if you're in their own experience, but you're right. Like how mm -hmm. many people often want to be like, yeah, I, I want to talk about this thing that you're right. picking up on, like without yeah. prompt. And right. It can feel so intrusive. Right. And, and then I think maybe for myself, I don't want to speak for you by any means in terms of your experience. Like when it's found to be intrusive, I can almost be like in that RSD or like have mm -hmm. this rejection of like, oh shit, I just did something really wrong here. Like I, mm -hmm. then you start mm -hmm. to really get into your head of like, I don't know how to socialize. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that's why, I mean, for me, that's why I became a therapist. I'd, I'd be curious about you is, and, and this is how I navigated social spaces. I would be drawn to the people who did want to have those conversations and who were very existential. And I would just not really hang out at the surface. I would always find someone go deep, but that led to other complications. Um, but it meant I didn't really resonate with the, the having social struggles because I would just find people go really deep and, and then, and then move on. Um, okay. This is a tan I am fragmented today. I can like feel my thoughts bouncing around, but the, another thought I had that I'd be curious about, cause I, I had this experience in training and I remember really wanting to ask about it, but I was like, this sounds really weird. Um, I remember sitting with the client, I was going through informed consent and all of a sudden my words started getting really bumbly and I got really foggy and that that's not typical for me. And then I, I, I kind of continued to have that fogginess throughout the session. And over the course of our work together, I realized this was someone who um, had undiagnosed PTSD and was kind of low-key disassociated much of the time. So for me, I... If my client starts fogging out, I start fogging out. And so I know before they even say anything like, oh, they've just hit something emotional because I start feeling the like heaviness over me. I'm, I even experience that over Zoom therapy, which is wild to me. Um, I'm so curious. Do you have experiences like that as a therapist? Just like intense, intense mirror neurons where you're kind of 
viscerally feeling what your client's feeling? Oh yeah, all the time. And it still baffles me at times where like, if I'm feeling more energized, which to be honest with you is not often my, my energy level is pretty baseline low, <laughs> but if I'm having a more energetic day and then I step into a, an interaction therapeutically where that client has a lot of heaviness about them mm-hmm. and it's a, you can really sense that intense struggle. I will absorb that too. And then you're right. Like mm-hmm. that fogginess exists. I'm like stumbling through words, but I'm also trying to like make coherent thoughts happen mm-hmm. and things together yeah. that I usually do like that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why can't I think of what I'm trying to say right now? And it, it, yeah. it was, yeah. I mean, when we think about that, I mean, it seems so counterintuitive, right? But ultimately, it really does come back to that, that portion of that energy absorption, right? And like, maybe you're just picking up on that energy, even like you said, through a Zoom meeting, I think I find it even more intense through Zoom meetings, to be honest with you. Because I spend so much more time like tracking in Zoom oh. than I do in person where it's very obvious like what someone's body huh. language is doing. It has to, so that like there's more hypervigilance when you're on Zoom? I think so. Like I'm oh, definitely really trying harder to make eye contact on Zoom. Uh-huh. I'm definitely trying to like pay attention to my clients like body language and shifts because, you know, I can only see uh-huh. waist up or whatever. And yeah. I'm trying to really get a sense of what's happening for that person. So, and then you're listening much more intently to like that inflection in voice too. And like, uh-huh. change in uh-huh. so I think all of your energy is also being like really focused in on trying to be as, as um, aware as you can. And then mm-hmm. when you're picking up on that energy, I mean, you can almost go blank as if like, do I even know what the fuck I'm doing right now? Like, I don't even know if mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. either client or the therapist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, so especially if I'm, you know, kind of working through something pretty intense with someone. And yet, like you're saying, I'm in that same space with them. You're right. It's like, okay, I'm the guide here, but I'm also struggling to put words into a sentence. I've started, and again, it depends on the relationship, but I've started being more interpersonal and self-disclosing with it and using that of like, I'm feeling this right now. Does that mean anything to you? Or um, I'm with you and I am metabolizing this. I'm not as eloquent with my words as I'm metabolizing it, but so, and that's given me a lot of freedom of kind of naming in the interpersonal space, this is what's happening. Because before I would, I would try to push through and I would try to like make articulate sentences and then feel guilty when I wasn't able to do that. Like, oh my gosh, I'm such a clumsy therapist right now. How do your clients usually respond to that? I imagine that they're really receptive to that. Yeah, I think in general, I mean, and I like interpersonal work. It's, it's probably my favorite. So I think, and, and I wouldn't make a comment like that unless the relationship supported that sort of work. So in general, I think it helps create safety. You know, it's interesting. So I've worked with on the other side of the couch, right? I've worked with my therapist for about four years and, um, I, we've reflected now cause we didn't know I was autistic when we started. Like, how did I feel different as a client? What was your experience of me? And one thing he commented is, you know, you pulled for the interpersonal right away. And I, I tend to notice one way or the other with my autistic clients, like either they really need to know how I'm holding them in mind 
And I think that creates psychological safety because we're often trying to figure out how people are perceiving us or they're absolutely uninterested in how I'm thinking about them. But it tends to be pretty extreme, one or the other. It's one thing I've noticed. I'd be curious if you've noticed anything similar. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, circling back to like flipping the couch around, I I noticed that about myself too. And I do think the psychological safety is paramount there in terms of being able to to do that interpersonal work. I just know, like, I'm just thinking off tangentially now, like going for testing and the guy asking me like, or telling me that he knew I was autistic because I didn't ask him about the guitar on his wall and ask him if he played music. And I was thinking like, I don't really fucking care if you play music. Like, I don't get the qualifier yeah. there. Um, yeah. It almost brings me back, and this is how fragmented I am right now, to what you were saying about like in college, deep conversation, going right into it. I don't, again, you and I talked about this and we talk about this a lot. Like, I don't want to have those artificial surface level conversations. Yeah. So why would I have yeah. that? Like, yeah. you have a guitar in the wall. Do you play music? Like, the answer is uh-huh. clearly yes or yeah. it's no. And uh-huh. <laughs> if it's yes or no um uh-huh, uh-huh. but i do remember social situations in college you know I, I would start to like go back to those places where i was very often having conversations with people who were probably um either homeless or housing displaced at the time mm-hmm. and, like mm-hmm. really engage with them and checking in on them when i would be downtown and uh, my friends would make fun of me for that. They'd be like, you know, mm-hmm. you're always talking to like the weirdest human beings. And those are mm-hmm. the people you have conversations with. And I just always felt like there was some like, there was less vulnerability there in terms of being real. And mm-hmm. I just really hated having like the the artificial conversation. I was just in a conference in Hawaii. And you know, it's interesting is you develop a following that people think they know you, even though you don't know them. Mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. come up to me and they'll be like making eye contact with me as if I definitely mm-hmm. know who you are. And I'm looking at them like, I definitely don't know who you are. <laughs> They're like, hey, it's me. And I'm like, oh, and I listen to your podcast, mm-hmm. I'm in your Facebook group. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> and when it shifts to like, mm-hmm. so how's it going? Like, how long have you been here? Like, what are you looking to do? And I'm like, oh, fuck, I need an exit strategy. And now like, oh, yeah. How do I do this yeah. without being rude? But also, yeah. how do I do this? yeah purposes yeah oh and that's tough especially because if they're kind of admiring your work and you're not wanting i imagine to kind of rupture how they are seeing you but oh yeah i hate those conversations so much i hate them and i've gotten better you know since diagnosis and learning more about who i am and how i process everything like to be able to at least name it from times where I'm like, all right, I, I'm peopled out. Like I do not have yeah. capacity, yeah. but yeah, that stuff yeah. is tough. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So back to being a therapist though, it's interesting because, you know, if you're talking about like the double empathy bind or just thinking about mirroring and thinking about how autistic people are so vigilant in terms of tracking everything and absorbing everything. I, I just think it's another way to combat the narrative that autistic people are not empathetic and are not caring and cannot. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, that's just such an unfortunate stereotype. And, and I think it's a stereotype that prevents a lot of people from getting diagnosed. And it's still, still a stereotype widely held within the mental health professionals, right? It's like, oh, this person can't be autistic because they can have small talk or because they have empathy. Whereas, 
a lot of us have hyper empathy. And what do you think of the, I know there's this theory out there that because we tend to see hyper empathy or hypo empathy, that hypo empathy is kind of a defense against hyper empathy that develops through the course of someone's life. What do you think about that idea? Yeah. I mean, I can see that um, being more of like a protective factor for sure in terms of navigating social situations and relationships. And there's so much trauma involved too, right? Like in terms of yeah. what we're talking about and also in terms of feeling safe and able to be connected with people, mm-hmm. not just their struggles and their pain, but just in general. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? On, on the, as a protective? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as kind of a, like a shield that people... So there's a metaphor I really like it's a bit psychoanalytic. There's this idea called the skin ego, um, which is the idea that it is our, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to articulate this because it's very analytic and I'm very fragmented, but it's the idea. It's the first ego. Um, it is how we learn what is us and what is other. And there's a few essays out there, mostly from European authors who are, have talked about autism and skin ego. And I find that's really interesting. I've written a brief reflection on this of how I feel like I have porous skin. Like I don't feel like I have a contained skin ego. And so I, I create artificial skin to protect from my porous skin because everything gets in people's emotions, sensory smells, and I, it hits me to the core. And so for me, my artificial skin I've created are things like routine, special interests, um, wearing really comfortable clothing, literally artificial skin. Um, and I think for some people, I mean, my, so my hypothesis, and I hold this loosely as a hypothesis, is that kind of all autistic people start with porous skin. Again, I'm speaking metaphorically, not literally. Um, some people develop artificial skin to work with it. Some people don't, and they're just constantly bombarded by the too muchness of the world. Some people develop armor, and so the world just bounces off of them. And I think that's the more stereotypical presentation of autism is kind of flat, emotionless, empathyless, um, hyposensory. And in my mind, that's when people have developed armor to protect the porous skin. And so it's like a metallic thing that bounces off the inputs of the world. I like that. And I think you actually describe that really well. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it has to be learned so early on too, in terms of like what you're able to tolerate and not tolerate and what, what feels really uncomfortable and, mm-hmm. and disruptive and especially growing up without the language or without the ability to, mm-hmm. to, to really communicate or process mm-hmm. um, and without the education, it you're figuring out a way, right? Like you're figuring out a way to protect yourself. And some people really have to get firmly entrenched in that as well, in terms mm-hmm. of being able to set that boundary and just protect that. Because I, I was noticing the other day, I, I mean, I've been really worn down. I've talked about, you know, having surgery in a month and, you know, preparing for that. So there's a lot of emotional um, stress going on. And I, I just noticed, like, I do a pretty good job navigating my day to day and like, moving through the world as best as I can, but I was noticing everything like smells mm-hmm. were intensified mm-hmm. times a million uh-huh. and they're already intensified. Like 
right next right game was more intense like having conversations with people was painful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i was just thinking i'm like how in the fuck am i supposed to be a therapist mm-hmm. or a coach or an any mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. this week like how and all I wanted to do was like lay in my bed and watch. I don't know what I'm binging right now. It's probably the same thing I was binging the last time I was talking to you, which is Game probably again. <laughs> and I just noticed it. And I was just like, I, I, it just felt like everything times a million. And mm-hmm. as a therapist, that doesn't separate us from like knowing what's happening and being able to process things any differently when we have to show up as a helper or mm-hmm. as healer or as a partner or anything else so it's just like you know there are so many moments where i know a lot of my therapist friends who are either adhd autistic both that are just struggling so badly in those moments but then yeah. you have to figure out a way to almost overcompensate with your energy for those therapy sessions to then inevitably mm-hmm. just fucking crash yeah 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 so i'm curious how did you make it through that week where you were so burnt out I don't know. I mean, that was like five days ago. <laughs> okay, so, so you're in the week. Yeah, you're still making I, it through. I think what was helpful, like I was just in bed and I think my wife who, you know, is is definitely done her best to like get a sense of what's happening or going on for me mm-hmm. when I'm not able to communicate it. And she's, she knew something was wrong and she was just like, anything I can do? And I was like, nope. I just told her like mm-hmm. everything right now is bothering me. Like mm-hmm. everything. And just being able to name that, I think, was helpful. I mean, and yeah. then I had my own therapy the next day, which was also helpful. And you just, you know, I, I hate getting to that place where you're so depleted and burnt out and and you're, you know, you're just so overwhelmed um, that I just don't like being short with people. I don't like being like reactive mm-hmm. in that way. So I knew like, okay, you're about as far in as you can be in terms of depletion mm-hmm. and autism burnout and um yeah yeah but that doesn't mean that the job stops and i think that's what's so hard for helping professionals is like Mm -hmm. how take Mm -hmm. care of yourself and still be able to show up for the clients that you're helping yeah yeah it's 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 so hard and it's because yeah you can't put your work on pause be like okay i'm just gonna cancel everything i i guess you i guess you could and it's good to remember you you can do that you could be you like, I'm going to cancel clients for a week. Sure. In my mind, I forget that. I get so rigid um, in my thinking around that, that I forget it's okay to cancel sessions. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I, I wrote um, an article on this recently. And it's something I've been thinking about is like how it's shifted for me being an identity-based therapist or in it, having an identity-based practice. And by identity-based, I mean having some form of marginalized identity being public about it and then kind of marketing or advertising your services around that. Cause what it means is you're working with other people with that shared identity and how that intersects complexly with this idea of burnout in some ways, you know, my, my client load is pretty much all neurodivergent at this point, specifically ADHD and autistic and I'm, at this point, I'm only taking on um, autistic clients because it is so, it's so much easier to have neurodivergent conversations than to be masking as a therapist, which is what I've done for most of my careers, mask while doing therapy. Oh my gosh, train of thought. 
Oh, okay. I remember. <laughs> so so it's, there's so many benefits of being an identity-based practitioner, but I think it also makes the burnout so much more intense and the moral injury more intense of, I'm constantly saying no to people. Um, and I don't have very many people to refer them to. And so it's like, these are my people I'm saying no to. And I think that makes the burnout even more intense. And I, my client load keeps creeping up. I'm like, I'm going to max it at 10. And now it's, and now it's, you know, I've got like 22 people. And cause I keep taking on one more, <laughs> like, oh, I, once I hear the story. So yeah, yes. I think that adds a added layer of complexity when you share identities with your clientele. Hmm. Yeah. I was just laughing because I so relate to the like, you know, I only have a handful of spots, but then this person's story makes me realize I should have one more. Uh, um, it's, it's so bad. Yeah. Well, and especially if I read the email when I'm in my ADHD impulsivity, I'm like, sure, I'll fit you in. But then my autistic self has to do the work of keeping up with that. That's where I really notice ADHD and autism conflicting for me is my ADHD part overcommits like all over the place. And then I feel like it's on my autistic self to like do all the work. I'm so glad you just named that because that's such a great transition and segue point to talk about like when one part takes up more space, which for all of us, you know, one of those parts is going to take up the majority of the room for the most part. You're right. Like the ADHD part of me is all excited and has this frenetic like energy and like can be a bit impulsive in decision making. And then the autistic part is like, I've got to clean this mess up that you maybe mm -hmm. just created because mm -hmm. you said you were going to say no to all of these mm -hmm. things going forward and you did not. And mm -hmm. how can you possibly show up, not just for your clients, but for yourself and for anything else in your life, if you are just so depleted that you can't create and restore energy fast enough to keep mm -hmm. up with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you figure that out, can you let me know? I was hoping and pausing that you were going to have the magic answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, I think that for those of us who autist, our autism is primary, mm -hmm. ADHD can be fun and it can cause a hell of a lot of chaos too in, in my life. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I mean, for you, can you tell, like, I can kind of, I, and I do, I like parts work as I think you do too. I can, it feels like a different energy and I can tell when I'm in my kind of creative, impulsive, energetic energy. And I can tell like, this feels like a really good idea, but like next week when you're, you know, maintaining a Patreon and Instagram and your clients and assessments, you're going to hate the idea of starting a YouTube channel or whatever it is. Um, but in the moment, like, it's like, no, this is great. I'll be fine. Yeah. And those, you know, the, the struggle I think is that those moments feel pretty damn good because mm -hmm. the alternative is like feeling more flat and low mm -hmm. and where everything does feel a bit painful in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And 
it's nice when like, and I, and that's why ADHD and bipolar disorder get misdiagnosed so often as you talk mm-hmm. about on misdiagnosis Mondays, like it makes so much sense why someone may present when ADHD, mm-hmm. or ADHD is kind of steering the ship and then get diagnosed with a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then just trying to, <laughs> to balance things out and you know, thankfully, you're right. I, I mean, I do love parts work. I've been doing a lot of it and in my own therapy. And it's been very helpful right now because my my therapist is like, all right, I hear this part of you that's like, I want to create this retreat next year. And I just want you to pay attention to the part of you that's like, please do not do anything else. Like, mm-hmm. please try to at least acknowledge that part and mm-hmm. let it know that you see it because otherwise, mm-hmm. here we mm-hmm. go again. And I'm definitely getting better at saying no to things like I've actually taken pride in that recently being like Mm. everyone reaching out to me for coaching, for podcasts, for any, for anything at at all right now. I'm like not until 2023 and I don't have a firm date on that with surgery looming. So like it's actually kind of a reprieve in a way to say like I cannot do these things like there is Mm -hmm. no chance this can happen. But that doesn't mean that when that idea creeps up, you don't want to follow it. And like, you don't want to take advantage and harness the energy that is showing up for you Mm -hmm. when you're so used to just being pretty low energy in general. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I think that's part of it. I know for me, um, and I I feel like I see this for other folks as well, um, but I'll I'll speak from my experience, is I don't don't necessarily want to sit with that part of me. The part of me that's like, no, say no to more commitments. Because that's the part of me that is incredibly limited. That's, you know, last time I was on, we talked about the importance of holding space for grief. That's the part of me I grieve, the part that gets so exhausted so easily and who has incredible sensory limits and very real energy limits. Um, I don't really want to spend a lot of time with that part of me. I, and so the, right, the, you know, it's, again, in psychoanalytic terms, you talk about the manic defense of, that in this case, I guess the ADHD defense, the energetic impulsive defense of like, no, that's not who I am. I'm the person who is creative and goes and starts five different projects. Um, because I think it's so painful to acknowledge how integral that very fatigued, tired part of me is to who I am. Couldn't say it better myself. Um, I think there is a major grief process there with recognizing and seeing and acknowledging that that part is very real and takes up a lot of space. Maybe it takes up the majority of the space. And I think that for me, that is why I typically do pursue these like sparks of creative energy when I have them, because I know Mm -hmm. that what lies on the other side of that is just that utter Mm -hmm. depletion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, for those of you listening who identify or can relate or even who just experienced pretty major depression, I mean, it's not a fun place to be. Mm -mm. Um, It's exhausting and it sucks to think like, I'm tired all the time. How do you break out of it? So then when it does Mm -hmm. happen for that two or three day period or whatever the case may be, it makes complete fucking sense to me why you would be Mm -hmm. like, yes, finally, (laughs) like. I needed this, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I, I certainly try to see 
the duality in that and just the realization that that is my process. Because I think for so long, I tried so hard to figure out like how to put limitations on myself in terms mm -hmm. of like, say no, say no, say no, rest, rest, rest. But like in reality, if you're tired all the time and you're resting, 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 then what is wrong with also pursuing the parts of you that like really excite you and light you up too? Yeah. Yeah. I like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. It's been, yeah. you know, I still struggle with it for sure. I think I've gotten better at it. And I told my therapist this the other day, like I noticed like if I start to pay attention like cyclically and to seasons, okay, as the fall approaches, I love the fall, but I do notice this mm -hmm. major, major energy dip. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I know you're in California, so maybe you're not experiencing the fall like we are, but, you know, it'll be cold here and it'll be dark and it is a yeah. nice time to kind of be like, all right, mm -hmm. shutting, shutting everything down. So I think I've made sense of like my process of being really creative from like, I don't know, mm -hmm. March to August. And then the rest of the year is just kind of slowly, like just coming back to a place where you're like, I can't say yes to anything else. And instead of trying to change that or set parameters on myself or like, Hey, I'm going to agree to do these things. I'd rather just be like, this is just my fucking life. Like this is my process. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually wish I was in California. I'm in Oregon and we have very long gray winters and I experienced the same thing of like, okay, spring and summer, I can count on having energy. I tend to get a lot of projects on. I tend to overcommit during the spring and summer. And then yeah, fall and winter, like the fatigue is just so, so intense. Yep. Do you start to notice it like starting to creep in? Like I noticed that this year and I've been paying more attention to my energy in general this year, but like as soon as August 1st hit, I noticed there was like this shift mm. for me where I'm like, Ooh, mm. I, August is my birth month. Like I like August. I like September. I like October, but I also felt myself like realizing like, okay, my energy's dipping. Like it's time mm -hmm. to start paying attention to what you're saying yes and no mm -hmm. to. Not in terms mm -hmm. of like creative energy, but obligations of things that you may not mm -hmm. necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. Like there's no reason to do the other networking call or the extra uh, Zoom webinar or whatever at this point in time. Because if you want to like be functional throughout the next couple mm -hmm. of months, you really have to basically start to be really intentional about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to answer your question, I don't think I notice it that early for me. For me, it comes on more when that like it's very connected to light. So once it starts getting the days start getting shorter. So I think kind of mid-October, November. Let me ask you, I'm curious. So one way that I've this year's been a big experiment. It's my first year of my private practice. Um and I'm still figuring things out, but I feel like in general, I have created ways where, so I've got energy kind of inputs and energy outputs. Um, and I, I protect my time to create content, to create digital workbooks, because that, um, again, if I, if I have too much on my plate, everything is an energy zap. But when I have an kind of decent amount on my plate those actually restore my energy to like sit out on my porch in the sun and to be diving into a special interest i'm curious do you find that too where there's parts of your work that actually are energy inputs for you 
I'm so glad you asked that actually a great question. And yeah, absolutely. Like there are things that I do that are very energizing, but like you said, when I have too much on my plate, when I'm like answering these things in all of these places and, and working mm -hmm. on things that aren't really my jam, but they're a part of my day to day. That's when I start to notice like everything gets magnified and intensified in those, mm -hmm. in those situations. Mm -hmm. There are things that I absolutely love doing where I don't even look at it as work a lot of the time. So I think that a lot of people maybe struggle to conceptualize that. I know you and I talked a little bit about like the difference between special interests and hyper fixations and also like hustle culture that can get so mm -hmm. identified a lot of the time, especially for people who are like parts of my day to day or work or career are very energizing. I think mm -hmm. I've been met with like this look of like, that's just workaholism talking. Mm -hmm. And I can yeah, say that, for sure that is not the case. That, that just, just feels like such a simple narrative to, to just, it's workaholism. It's like, okay, no, like what's behind it? What's the function? What's, what's the person getting out of it? Yeah, absolutely. But I love that question because that that's definitely a part of it for me. Like I was writing before and I noticed like when I'm really feeling good, I'm like, I'm writing a lot and I'm being really creative. And I was like, Ooh, I could probably like really create a bunch of content right now. And this feels really good. This feels really energizing. Now, if you turn that and flip it around and you say, Oh, you're getting all these calls in your group practice and your office manager has COVID and is sick and is out and you have to answer them. That is not energizing for me. Like that is like, look at the message, look at the message, look at my phone and just be like, all right, so who wants to buy a group practice? Anyone out there looking? So, you know, I think special interests, having things that we really enjoy doing, I think is is so crucial as well. And, mm -hmm. and not for autistic and ADHD people, but like everybody needs this. And we need to have these things that we really enjoy doing, but especially for those of us who, you know, special interests are really a big part of our world. I mean, I need those things in my life and I, I need those things because they make me not only feel good, but they energize me as well. Yeah. 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 That That's my kind of ideal equation I'm working toward where I've got kind of equal amounts of energy input and energy output and can make a career out of it. I think I have to learn how to say no before I do that, but that that is the goal I'm working towards. Um, that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. The next time that I talk with you, whether it's on here or on Instagram, I'm going to say, are you still at 22? And if you say to me, oh, I'm actually 23. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And I partly for like ethical reasons, I know I just can't do that. I, I become a less effective therapist when I've seen that many. And so I like I'm at a point where I'm like, OK, ethically, I can't take on more people because I know I'll be less effective for everyone on my baseload. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. hundred uh, percent. What were you going to say? If you remember what you were going to say? Oh, it was just when you were talking about kind of the drains, one thing I noticed it, like the pings and the pongs, like the, you know, responding to messages and this, that stood out to me. I feel like that is the number one drain. I don't know why I did this to myself, but I have five different email accounts I track <laughs> And then, you know, I post on Instagram, I post on Facebook, I'm starting to get into Pinterest. And it is just like, it almost induces panic how many like 
pings come at me. And I, I've gotten to a point and I, I feel, I, I both feel proud of myself and I feel negligent about this. So my, my Instagram, I've, I had several posts go viral in the last six weeks. So it just like more than doubled in six weeks and it's just gotten very active. So I stopped reading comments <laughs> and that on one hand, it's like, okay, if I'm a content creator, I like have this responsibility to read comments and respond, but there is no way I'd be a content creator if I was doing that. And so that is one accommodation I've given myself is like, I'm just, I'm just not, I'm just not going to do it partly because of rejection sensitivity. And even if there's a hundred positive comments, one negative comment will hijack my nervous system. And then I'll resent that I'm so like freaking fragile. But yes, the pings and the pongs. If I could just erase all of those, I, I think my nervous system and my body would feel so different. Yeah, I did it. My therapist would laugh because we had a whole conversation about this the other day <laughs> about being responsive to the pings and the pongs and all the different platforms that people message me on, whether it's like Voxer, Facebook, Instagram, um, all the things. And there is that part of me that like is overly responsive and I'm trying so hard not to be. Then there's the part who like hates all red notifications on my phone. So I have to clear them. And then I feel mm -hmm. bad I didn't clear them. Um, mm -hmm. I had a TikTok video go viral back in May and it hit like upwards of a million and the comments like responding to the fucking comments for mm -hmm. days mm -hmm. consumed my life for like three days mm -hmm. and I have not mm -hmm. opened the app since that time like because I yeah. got so yeah. inundated with like, I have to respond to mm -hmm. everybody I have to like and then like mm -hmm. you said negative comments oh my god um then that hits my ego and then like my mm -hmm. rejection activity kicks in and then I want to smash my phone with a sledgehammer and then like <laughs> yeah but I seriously have not opened that app since that day. And I, I won't. Mm -hmm. And part of yeah. and my social media person's like, why aren't you going back on TikTok? Like you were building an mm -hmm. audience. I'm like, nope, don't want it. Don't care. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. Because like, mm -hmm. I know I just have to have some limitations and accountability to myself mm -hmm. because it, it can be endless. And mm -hmm. I mean, you make really incredible content and you're, you've got a huge following, which is only going to increase. And I know the anxiety that that can also bring. Like it's a double-edged sword. It's wonderful, it's fantastic, mm -hmm. and it's exhausting too. Like even running mm -hmm. my Facebook group, we're almost at seven thousand people in that group, and the bigger the group, the more the more you have to moderate, mm -hmm. the more you have to pay attention, the more you have to mm -hmm. make sure people aren't doing like stupid shit. And mm -hmm. it's just like, all right, I love m my members. It's also exhausting, and mm -hmm. just try mm -hmm. to remember that, like. I can't be involved in it 24 seven. It yeah. just can't. Yeah. I also wonder how much that has to do. It's interesting. I've always thought of it as kind of an ADHD thing of, well, like my, my inbox is just atrocious, but for the first time, I'm also thinking about it from an autism frame of when that takes up a lot of our day, it's unexpected demands that come at us. And I'm, I'm pretty like, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not PDA, but I have a strong demand avoidance. I don't like being told what to do. And so all of these, whether they're coming at us from Instagram or Facebook or email, they're all incoming demands. And even if it's a comment, like it's small, but that's hundreds and hundreds of demands that weren't necessarily budgeted into the day that are unexpected shifts. 
And so I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but it, it's given me more compassion for myself of why it's so hard because it's, this is not what I had planned for the day. I planned an hour of deep thinking, not like responding to comments time. And now an hour is gone. And um, that wasn't my plan for the day. Sure. <laughs> That's yeah, stressful. Absolutely. And then throwing time blindness into the equation and then, you know, you're spending your day doing something you didn't want to be doing, not only not mm -hmm. intending. And I, you know, I've tried really hard um, to start my day without like picking my phone up immediately and looking at mm -hmm. it because I know mm -hmm. already like there are going to be all these messages to respond to. So trying to start my day like doing something different, going to get coffee, going to get, you know, mm -hmm. just do anything that isn't phone related before diving in because otherwise I will be responding to things at like 7 8 a.m as soon as i get up until the day till the mm -hmm. moment i put my phone away to go to sleep so i do think that is that's a really good point megan i appreciate you naming that because i think it is those little demands that like in little quantities don't seem like much but when you start to add mm -hmm. them on top of each other i mean it can take hours of your life and of your day yeah. of the week so like i think we can use this um episode not just for everyone else listening who identifies um with any of what we're talking about, but for ourselves to hold each other accountable because, you know, you have a lot to offer the world and you have a lot of great information coming out and it's only possible if you have the energy to continue mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And likewise to you. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I think all neurodivergent content creators, I, I see that I, and I really appreciate the conversations around burnout and boundaries because, um, it is interesting. In some ways, I feel like being a content creator is more draining. The, the people involved in being a content creator is more draining than being a therapist. Yeah. I think. Um, and, and so there has to be boundaries if it's going to be sustainable. Um, and it's really, really hard, I think, to, to put up those boundaries because of all the things we've talked about. I think the desire to respond, especially to our community of people, um, rejection sensitivity, it, yeah, it feels really painful that I can't respond to all the DMs, you know, especially I think most of the unanswered DMs are like, how do I get an assessment? Which I just, frankly, I can't answer that because it changes by country, it changes by state, it changes by insurance. Um, and, and that's part of the experience, right? Opening the app and seeing all these needs that I cannot address. Um, and that's part of the moral injury, I would say, of, again, being an identity-based creator or therapist. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're 100% right. And then there can be a lot of guilt that, and shame that comes around, up around not being able to respond or help or, or navigate mm -hmm. this. And I will say that was another big reason I stopped talking about it on TikTok because I was just getting people from all over. And I know you do already with the content you create, just people from everywhere asking me, can you be my therapist? Can you connect me to a therapist? Mm -hmm. Can you connect? And mm -hmm. I'm like, I, mm -hmm. I want to, but I, I can't do this. Like I cannot yeah. respond to yeah. all of these people. So yeah. for those of you listening, yeah. you know, whether you're a therapist, an entrepreneur, or, you know, have similar experiences, just know that it is okay for you to take a step back and set some boundaries and limitations for yourself to preserve your energy as well. Because we all know that we cannot take care of other people if we cannot take care of ourselves. And 
I think that's just really paramount in this conversation right now for both of us as we're both exhausted and just mm -hmm. talk for 55 minutes. So um, I want to give us both like congratulations on that. And for everyone listening, I appreciate it very much. And um, Megan, I just want to say that I really, really, really appreciate becoming friends this year and colleagues and just being connected. And I just really love what you're doing for the autistic and neurodivergent world. Thank you so much. I, I think you're, well, I, I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't say things like favorites, but you're one of my favorite things to come out of Instagram. I, I really have enjoyed our conversations both on the podcast and off. It's, it's just felt really, well, I would say an energy input to be connected with you. So thank you. Feeling is mutual for sure. So thank you too. Um, do you want to tell anyone where to find you so you can further increase your following on Instagram? Well, I, I will tell them they can find me at neurodivergentinsights.com and on Instagram. And I'm so sorry, but I will probably not be seeing your comment or responding to it. I, I am a little bit better with DMs, but I don't respond to any sort of uh, medical requests. Love it. Good boundaries and wonderful information coming out that will be in the show notes as well. And again, just thank you for making the time. And I hope that everything starts to settle down out in Oregon as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. To everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast, there are new episodes coming out every Sunday morning on all major platforms like download, subscribe, and share. If you want to find out more of what I have to offer, go to allthingspractice.com for upcoming entrepreneurial retreats, private practice podcast episodes, coaching programs, and more. You can also join the All Things Private Practice Facebook group. Doubt yourself. Do it anyway. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Megan. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.